You're listening to The Marlowe Podcast. Each week, we bring on experts to help you navigate your career. In this week's episode, Matt DuPont, the author of How to Get First Round Interviews at Tech Companies, joined us to talk about the importance of informational interviews. Matt coaches job seekers in tech on how to be successful in getting the job they want. And informational interviews are a huge part of this process. And so whether your goal is actually learning more about the company, whether it's getting a referral to a friend of yours that works at a company I'm interested in, whether it's working for you, in any case, those informal interviews, uh, I would call informational. Awesome, Matt. Well, Matt, thanks for being with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me, Mary. So today we were going to dive into what product managers or aspiring product managers can do to look for their their next position. And this is a really interesting space. As people look for new jobs, there seems to be this mystery overlaying the job search. And you're currently writing a book to demystify this process a little bit. Can you tell me more about that? Sure, sure. So I've actually just finished that up. So that was definitely true when we last talked and um, that's now been released. And the book is on how to get first round interviews at tech companies. Um, I wrote this because initially when I started helping people with their job searches, I was under the impression I'd be doing mostly interview coaching and helping people out that already kind of were in the in the mix and getting interviews for positions, but weren't getting all the way there. And what I found to my surprise is that over half the people I talked to, especially product managers, which is typically not an entry-level role, it's something you're transitioning to after you've been in your career for anywhere between two and 20 years, about half those people, the big problem wasn't their interviews. It was that they just send a bunch of applications and resumes and get nothing back but silence or form rejection letters. And that's really, really painful because when you're doing an interview, you get some feedback with each other. You get to improve over time. Even if you didn't get the interview, you're like, oh, that answer didn't go very well. But when you send an application and you get back no feedback, and that happens over and over again, that's incredibly depressing. So that seemed like the most impactful area to focus on. And uh, so I've really tried to dig into, instead of just giving the advice network, what do you actually very concretely do to get all the way from finding companies you're interested in all the way to having a warm referral at a place you didn't know anyone before. And that is exactly why today we're diving all the way into those informational interviews and how candidates can use those to skip the um, kind of unclear application process where they're not getting any feedback. Before we dive into that, can you tell me more about yourself and how you ended up in this? Sure, sure. So uh, I, a lot of this is really shaped by a terrible, terrible job search I had uh, sophomore year of college. Um, and so my, uh, I was majoring in computer science and political science. I really wanted to work in Washington, D.C. So I looked up all these different think tanks I could work at. I sent out my applications and I, I did 38 of them. So I was pretty sure at least a few of them would come through. And then I got two responses, not, not two interviews, but two people in any way decided to acknowledge the fact that I existed. And that was incredibly embarrassing and painful. And I didn't really end up doing what I wanted to do that summer. And I kind of decided, okay, that is not going to happen again. And so then the next time I got really, really obsessed with job searching, I put in way too much effort. I did probably I believe it was 12 informational interviews the first place I got the offer. And so I just started this trend of over-preparing that um, worked out very well for me. And so uh, in my own job searches in the last, uh, between 2009 and 2018, I had a 80% success rate in turning first round interviews into offers. Uh, not because I'm some special snowflake or some amazing candidate, but just because I did a lot more work than other people. And I think I did work in more effective places. So uh, in my career, I've worked mostly in product management. I did that at uh, OkCupid, um, as well as a company I'm at now, Poll Everywhere. And I've also uh, founded a VC-backed startup and done some sales work. So I've kind of been all over the place career-wise. I've done a lot of different job searches. And the thing that I'm really passionate about now is job search coaching, which I've been doing for 
uh, about a year at this point, focused on PMs and salespeople. And uh, I hope to continue to expand that until that becomes uh, my full-time job. So uh, we're early, we're early in the journey, but already it's been nice to help out a couple dozen people, just showing them what I did in my past. And it's not rocket science. It's just not what most people do. So you took that first experience trying to apply to 38 jobs. You got two responses back. Yeah. And now you've moved on to figuring out the solution to get an 80% success rate, not just a response, but now you're getting all the way through the pipeline and and getting those offers. Um, And that's that's if they give me an interview. By no means have I figured out how to get 80% of people to respond to email. That would be be miraculous. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, (laughs) So as you know, as we think about this, you and I prepped a little bit and we talked a lot about how there, this is a really long process, right? It starts with that first initial outreach, however that is, if it's a cold application or maybe networking, all the way through to this interview process. And we landed on discussing the informational interview. What is it about the informational interview that is so important in your mind? Sure, sure. So I think what's best to start is just uh, defining informational interview. Because the last time I gave a talk on informational interviews, I actually found a full third of the audience didn't have a clear definition of what that was. And so we'll do this by contrast. Uh, what I'd call an assessment interview is what everyone thinks of when they say job interview. You are probably putting on some nice clothes. You're either having a nervous phone call or you're going into the office. But in any case, someone that currently works at that company is assessing your performance and deciding whether to take you to the next round or give you an offer. And so there's going to be a score. There's usually some set questions. There's a scoring system afterwards. It's very formal and it's part of the application process. By contrast, an informational interview is informal. And the way I like to define it, uh, which is a bit, a bit cheeky, but I think actually accurate if you look at it overall, is that an informational interview is an interview where the stated goal is learning. So even if I wanted to talk to you because I want to get a job at Marlowe. I'm not going to come in and say, hey, Mary, I need a job. I'm going to say, hey, Mary, I'd love to talk to you about your company. I'm really interested and I want to learn more. And so whether your goal is actually learning more about the company, whether it's getting a referral to a friend of yours that works at a company I'm interested in, whether it's working for you, in any case, those informal interviews, uh, I would call informational. And there's a couple of reasons why I find informational interviews to be really important. The main one, which I'm sure most listeners are familiar with, is that you have a much, much higher chance of getting a job interview in the first place when you have a degree of personal connection. And that's a theme we can get into later if we want to take in that direction when we look at how a recruiter's day actually works. But aside from the main use of informational interviews, which is kind of networking your way towards a job, there are also two uses I don't see people think about as much. Um, one of those is it lets you disqualify companies really fast. It's super painful to job search for most people. And so if you are going to take days off work or take your time to have a recruiter screen and then talk to a product manager to get cleared to a super day where you're coming in and doing four or five interviews. And then after all that, you find out your boss would be terrible and you'd never want to work at this company. You've just wasted a huge amount of your time. But if you talk to one employee that used to work there about why they quit, you might've found out in 15 minutes that you need to run from that company as fast as you can. So you can save a lot of time when you do these informational interviews, even if it feels like it's more work than just sending in applications. And the final thing I think that's important about informational interviews that um, aside from getting, getting networking towards a job, which I'm sure we'll be going to, into in more depth, is that you're going to do a much better job uh, in the application process. So most people think of it as I need to do this interview in order to get an interview in the first place, and that is the only purpose. But if you do these interviews right, if it's more than just asking a few questions about the culture and then having them send in your resume then you're going to learn a lot about what's strategically important to that company or what problems they're experiencing right now or what the founders look for in how they hire. And so the goal here should be that you should have more information and be able to make a better case for yourself than anyone else who isn't doing those interviews. And so the reason I was so successful when I applied to these jobs is not because I was necessarily the best candidate. It's because I knew exactly what they were looking for, because I talked to a bunch of people that was important to the company. And so instead of coming in as a passive applicant, or I'm asking questions about their business, I'm telling them directly how when I'm a product manager there, I'm going to be fixing problems that they already know about and care about. And that just changes the dynamic of the interview very, very highly. 
This is huge. And being able to go in there knowing what they're thinking in some ways to be able to set yourself up for, for smarter questions, smarter answers. What is it about... So I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I, I want to dive a lot into informational interviews. Of course, that's the reason we're here today. But we're also specifically talking about these types of conversations for product managers, you know, right. specifically product managers. What's going on in the product manager job market right now? Kind of what's the state of this? And um, why did you choose job product managers in particular? Sure, sure. So the main reason I chose uh, product managers is just because I've done that job for uh, five plus years. Um, I've had offers from places like Google or uh, Zynga way back when that was a good idea instead of a mostly empty building and Soma um, uh, and uh, uh, many other uh, many other companies where it just seemed like that job searching methodology worked really well, even though I was coming out of consulting, I didn't have any experience in PM. Um, but the thing that makes it a really interesting place to help people is that there's not a clear way to get into product management. So there's a lot of really confused people trying to figure it out. Now, in, the, in this PM job market, it is, first of all, very, very competitive. And I think that's mainly because most people seem to think it solves the thing they hate most about their jobs for about five different jobs. So whether you're a designer that wishes that you could prioritize more um, what you're going to work on instead of working on something that makes no sense, or a developer who's tired of having to trade off the beautiful things you're building versus the business ideas, or a business person that wants to actually get your hands in there and make something instead of spreadsheets. All these people, a significant fraction of them flock towards PM. And then you've also now, because startups being hot in the last few years, um, a significant fraction of the MBAs that we're trying to go into finance or consulting are trying to go into startups or product management. And so you've got these traditional on-ramps like APM programs at big companies like Google or Facebook uh, or post post MBA hires from pedigreed schools or people that have led a development team, which is usually a very um, accepted way to move to PM, combining with all these new channels uh, like for-profit uh, product school or general assembly or other courses, which you know advertise the ability to move you into product management. And because it's re- it's never this first job, much like business development. Um, in the, in the true sense of business development, not in terms of the SDR smile and dial sense, then uh, there's not one clean path. And so I find it fascinating uh, to work on a market that's so complicated. And just because I've done it well enough that people give me some degree of credibility, that's where I focus. As an individual considers um, that direct path. So you mentioned all of these different ways to do it. They can mm-hmm. apply to a program at a big company that's looking to train PMs or they can go through an MBA or some sort of business program, or they can go through these for-profit organizations like you mentioned. Being in San Francisco, there are a lot of those programs. Mm. Do you find that any of these paths tends to be more successful than others as somebody's really at the beginning of looking into this process? Um, Should they be considering one of those prereqs before they start jumping into a product management role or wasting any of their time? So I've been pretty confident in the answers that I've said so far. Uh, and this is an answer where I have some opinions, but I wouldn't, you know, if you're, if you're listening, uh, this is not an area where I feel confident to tell you to take your life in this direction. There's one, uh, common pitfall, which I see, uh, there's a couple pitfalls, but one that I see pretty often is that it's kind of mentally easier to go accumulate more credentials or go stack up more reasons you should be able to do a job. So, um, you know, no one's going to doubt you if you go get an MBA from a nice school or uh, if you pay a bunch of money to go be in a product school or general assembly or something. Whereas if you just go without work for two months and try to find these jobs directly and work on how do you interact with people, how do you pitch yourself, that's uh, a much harder road, both because you're more internally dependent for motivation and because society is not giving you any status points for doing that. So um, generally, my recommendation is if you think you want to do something, make very, very sure that people won't just hire you to do that thing uh, before you run off and get a bunch of credentials that are expensive in money and time or both. Um, with that said, I think the uh, generally the, uh, the best way to move towards product management, I don't know the results of these programs well enough. Um, I do know that one interesting thing you can look at in a program to assess very easily 
if they're definitely successful is if they take a percentage of first year income. So I am more likely to recommend uh, a dev like, I don't know if it's still called hack reactors. They just got acquired where they take a position on the money you make or a sales boot camp where they'll take a position on the money you make instead of a company where you pay them a bunch of money. And then if you don't happen to get the job, uh, their incentive is not necessarily aligned with yours, even though they're going to, you know, they're not, they're great people. They're doing their best work, but they're not betting on you becoming a product manager. So typically I think it's good uh, to, if you're trying to be a PM and you're working somewhere, try to make your job more PM before transitioning. So what that means is if you don't have leadership experience, try to lead a team and get on the core software team. If you can, if you are not uh, working directly with engineers, designers, and product managers, it's harder to justify giving you control over a piece of software than if you've kind of seen how it all works and you're kind of just shifting seats internally in there. But, um, there's not, that's kind of the extent of the one size fits all advice I have there. It's a very individual path. And someone that's been a developer for eight years versus a designer for two versus come out of a pedigree CS program, I'd tell them very different things on how to get there. Yeah. And that really is a great segue into a question that drives me nuts. And I, and I always ask, like, what are the differences in a PM role from company to company, right? As you're, you just described, you could be a designer, an engineer, a Gosh, I could name for a project manager who's transferring into a product management. How do the roles themselves differ from company to company? And, and how can somebody start to learn about those differences across companies or even within the same company? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, clearly thought about this quite a bit since uh, you nailed three of the four major skill sets I usually talk about there. So product manager is one of three job titles I know of in tech that tells you almost nothing. Um, there's product manager, there's business development, which can mean a wide variety of things within uh, partnerships or strategic sales, as well as an entry-level role where you're passing prospects to an account executive. And there's the new exciting customer success, which has sprung up in the last two years to mean anything from strategic account management to customer support tickets. So with these sorts of roles, it's really important to investigate exactly what you would be doing at a given company, especially because all these titles carry some status. And so oftentimes... Well, not often, this, it's, it's much less often than a, a good position, but you'll find some companies will sort of try to dress up a position that is less desirable uh, by giving it a title that is very exciting to a lot of folks. And so to your point earlier, uh, there are a couple of different areas where I feel uh, could be this, the area that's most demanded of a product manager. Um, uh, one is the project management piece, which you named. So sort of just making sure that the right people are doing the right things and communication happens with uh, the other teams internally with stakeholders, et cetera. Um, this can, this is pro all of these things I'm going to talk about are going to be a part of any PM job, but understanding the ratio is very important, especially if you're bad at them at some of them and good at some of them. Um, uh, so I'll name the other three and then I'll talk about how to look at uh, analyzing which pieces are present in any given company. Um, the other, the other roles that I see really, really being bigger, one is kind of a business strategy analytics piece. So how much are you positioning against competitors or the market or doing things related to pricing, uh, kind of the more traditional MBA or consulting skill set? This is also very big in gaming because there's a lot of analytics available. Uh, then there's design, um, mostly, uh, user experience design rather than visual design, but can you create user interfaces that are interesting? And then finally, uh, development and working with engineers. Uh, you may or may not be working directly on a technical concept, but you'll probably be working with and helping manage a technical team. And so you need to have some degree of credibility with engineers. Ideally, you can know when to push back on estimates, when to accept things, when to trade off against tech debt. So there's so much complexity there. And for me in particular, I'm very strong on the business side and on the development side because I did computer science and um, consulting but I'm an average project manager and I am a terrible designer. And so one of the things I have to look at when I'm looking at companies is I need to make sure they have a strong design team because if the design team isn't great, then whatever comes out of me and that design team working together is not going to look very good. And so that's one of the first questions I ask. And so when I do these informational interviews, I have a list of, I know what my strengths are and I want to make sure a, that this company has some big problems that value my strengths. So if it's just about project managing and 
coordinating a lot of teams, that's something where my special advantages don't shine very much. And I'm probably going to be less competitive in interviews. Or if they need a really strong design PM, I'm just going to bow out of the process right there and save us all six hours of trouble. Um, whereas if they really value working with a technical team or a business team, then I'm going to test that out in the informational interviews. And I'm going to emphasize that theme when I get to the assessment interviews later on. That's great. And confusing and I can imagine for a new product manager or somebody who's looking to get in this space, um, it can feel overwhelming, which makes today's conversation so much more important, which is, you know, what should individuals think about when they're starting this job process and how can they use those informational interviews to, to really help them out? Um, so from a high level, how should a product management candidate look at this job search process? So I think the way to look at it overall is going to be as a series of experiments that you're going to conduct on what sorts of employers respond to what parts of your profile. So some of the things that you're going to be experimenting with would be, um, are companies of a certain size excited about you? Oftentimes, if you have no experience as a PM, it can be harder to get a role that isn't explicitly entry level at something like a LinkedIn or... Uh, a Facebook, whereas a Series B startup where you have industry experience in that vertical might be really excited about taking a chance on you. Um, you might find that companies of a certain pedigree do or do not work out. So if they're kind of the the hot, recently funded by one of the five VCs that everyone's heard of companies, and they're hiring all just you know Ivy League ex Google PMs because they have an Ivy League ex Google PM you might find your profile does or does not test very well in that environment. And then a really big one you have to experiment with is industry. So do companies in that industry accept your experience as something that's a big boost? For example, one of the clients I was working with recently, uh, he's only been a PM for two years, but he's been, he has a long history of successfully working in finance. He's been in private equity. He's been in family offices. He's been all over the place. And so what we found through experimenting with different employers is that even though he's interested in cryptocurrency, those set of companies do not feel that his experience is particularly helpful. But um, many companies in lending or personal finance have been extremely enthusiastic about his profile. And so we've focused our efforts in that direction because he's getting great results, he's getting interviews, and that's getting a lot of traction there. And so... um, the way that you're going to actually apply this is that your goal is going to be to focus on manufacturing people who recommend you excitedly for PM jobs. Because your first problem is just, are you getting interviews in the first place? And once you're getting interviews, like I said, there's a whole nother set of feedback that you can work on. But if you're not getting interviews in the first place, we start with how do we get to that point where someone says, I think Mary would be an amazing fit as a PM at this company. And then we walk it back. And so what that means is that there's going to be this funnel where first you're going to be selecting companies that seem like they might be interesting to you and might value your experience in some ways. Then you're going to need to pick which people to attempt to talk to at those companies. So who are you going to reach out to at those informational interviews? And once you have those people selected, then you're going to do the reach out itself. And there's certainly a lot that goes into how do you get someone who you've never spoken with to take time with you. Of course, if it's a warm introduction, if you have a friend that works there, great. If you have a friend that knows a friend that works there, great. But unfortunately, you know, most of us don't have a buddy at every single company we apply to. So to make it work, you're going to be trying to work on some cold reach out. And so that's, you know, how do you find the contact and reach that person in the first place? And what do you send them so that they don't just ignore it? And then finally, uh, you know, as a sort of a dog chasing a car, once you get that informational interview, you need to know what to do with it. And so there's a Definitely some thinking to do around when you're in that interview, uh, how are you, what kind of questions or topics are you going to raise and what order in order to learn what you need to or present yourself very well. So that's a general overview, and I'm happy to dive deeper on any or all of those pieces. Uh, but I would say the key takeaways are you're going to view it as a series of experiments on which companies react well to you, and you should be very focused if your first experiment of when I send out a bunch of resumes and cover letters, do people respond? Um, if that does not produce interviews as it doesn't for almost any first time PM or and many second time PMs, um, then you need to start manufacturing those intros. But I will caveat all that. That's way complicated. If you have the kind of pedigree where you can just send out a resume and a cover letter and get interviews, 
you can save yourself a lot of time by ignoring most of what I'm saying and just doing that. Yeah. It's like at that point, if you, you might as well try it, but if you really think that you have that qualification, but at the same time, I find that individuals who don't apply for a job because they think they're unqualified, um, they could have just gotten the job. And then on the reverse side, if you think that you're only applying to jobs that, that you are qualified for, you might miss out on some really great opportunities you never knew about. And I think in informational interviews, as we'll discuss later, they really do give you an opportunity to discover roles that didn't, you know, maybe aren't public or you didn't know existed. Absolutely. And I think um, as I'm happy to link in the show notes, there's a wonderful Harvard Business Review article that actually shows that uh, this is a very gendered division too. Um, and so there's a lot of results showing that women are much less likely to apply to roles where they don't meet every single one of the listed qualifications, um, even though uh, meeting only some of them is usually good enough. And so I'm happy to link that. But if you are finding yourself not applying to a bunch of roles because you don't think you're qualified, um, give this a read and you'll be surprised at how many people don't meet most of the job requirements and uh, are able to get the job anyway. So sometimes, like you said, you just got to kind of get in there and give it a shot. Uh, worst case, you get a form rejection email. And then the other half of this is when you talk to people, you can also realize which of those job requirements do matter and which ones don't for any particular role. And yes. as a former recruiter, I can say a lot of times job descriptions, whether it's the hiring manager or the the talent team that are writing them, they're copied and pasted from past recs instead of doing the right process of getting in and figuring out what do we really need for this specific role. And so as a result, they might not be as useful as, again, talking to somebody who's, who's in the weeds and actually knows what's going on. We talked a little bit about why informational interviews matter, but what are the different types of informational interviews? As you're going into this, is it one size fits all or how does this work? That's a great question. I think there's, most people kind of lump them all together, but I think there's two lenses that are helpful to view this. The really big lens that I try to focus on is what is your goal? Because a lot of people tend to think that if I get the informational interview, my goal is to go in there and I'm going to get a recommendation to apply at the company. The problem is if you go into that interview and you don't know anything about the company or you know what 10 minutes of LinkedIn research tells you, you're not going to seem like an especially insightful person. And so maybe if you carry yourself well, you really bond with that person perfectly, they might get enthused about you, but it's not as likely as if you had more information. And so I draw a steep distinction between a, an interview where your main goal is to learn and an interview where your main goal is to impress and get a recommendation. And I will often do one of those learning interviews before the impressing interviews. And these are different because the kind of questions I'd ask in a learning interview, I'm not going to be worried about looking stupid. I'm not going to be worried about, you know, filling my head with things like how am I going to come off or does this question make me look knowledgeable? I'm just going to be genuinely really curious about their background and about this company. And that's going to give me a lot of groundwork knowledge about the firm. And if that goes really well, maybe I ask for recommendations. But usually at the end of a learning interview, I ask them to introduce me to other people, whether it's at the same company or at a different company I find interesting. Then in the second informational interview with a company, then I will try to be more impressive because now from that first interview, I know a little bit about their strategy. I know a little bit of what they hire for and what's important. And so that gives me the ability to go in there and ask more insightful questions and come off as, wow, this guy knows more about us than anyone I've talked to in a while. I'm not just going to forward his resume to the recruiter when he sends me an email. I might actually put in a sentence or two about why I think Match should get an interview. And qualifications and everything else aside, and I'm sure, Mary, you can attest as a former recruiter, if someone that is hiring for that position thinks that a candidate would be a good fit, they're virtually guaranteed an interview if they express that to the recruiter because the recruiter's entire job is to find one candidate that that hiring manager thinks is great. Absolutely. And when you look at these larger companies that incentivize you know, referrals from their employees, often they, they pay cash, right, to get these referrals. You can always tell the difference between somebody who is referring somebody out of a favor and somebody who's referring them because they truly want that person on the team adding value. And the difference for me has been the person who catches me in the hallway and says, Hey, Mary, I, I have this person that you absolutely have to talk to versus the person who just, again, you know, just submits the the application in the system and never mentions it verbally or, you know, even via email. Yeah. Um, and so the stronger that com conversation is, the more likely you're going to get that super strong referral. 
And I would say that you can actually go, if you're aware that this company has referral bonuses, don't let someone get that just by forwarding your resume. At very minimum, you should, you should, it's okay if you don't have a, a bond that supersedes this because of your conversation, just saying, hey, I know you guys have a referral bonus of a couple thousand dollars. Would you be willing to do a practice interview with me about the company to help me get ready? Uh, you're not, that's like a little, maybe a little rude or crass compared to some tactics, but I found this works really well. Um, I wouldn't recommend this for everyone, but when I was applying to Google's PM program, I actually split my referral bonus among three people that I didn't know conditional on me, uh, uh, on them giving me practice interviews because the people I was already friends with, they would give me practice interviews already. So it's kind of a, a tool you can use to convince people that aren't as invested in you and seem like they're motivated by money to help you out of it. But that's uh, that's more just for fun and style points. I wouldn't worry about that too much when you're focused on the basics of informational interviewing. No, that's great. Great, great tips from product management interviews of the past. Um, so you have these two different types, the learning versus impressing. Mm-hmm. And, and I imagine for the learning interviews, there's still a certain level of work you would expect someone to do before going into that conversation, right? If, if they can find it on Google in 30 seconds or less, is that a good question to ask and how do you approach that preparation process? Yeah. So that's a, I can certainly, I can talk for our, our entire time about how to do the prep, but I think the, uh, the main things I want to focus on, uh, first off, a lot of what I base things on is that you need to have a plan a for the conversation. So you want to plan for, if that person is not getting excited or leading you in new directions, that you're going to have a series of sensible questions that you can ask them. And that's something that's a script you can be very happy walking away from. If you find the conversation takes an unexpected and wonderful turn and you're just learning a lot and you're soaking up information, don't worry that you only use one of your prepared questions. But for every time that happens, there might be a time where, you re- where they're not giving you a direction in the conversation or they're just going to kind of chat about the culture and you're going to be the person driving the conversation forward. So what that means in practice for me is that I like to prepare... Uh, a set of questions for each stage that could possibly happen during the interview. And I see the interview as having, I view it through uh, having four stages. And when I'm talking with somebody, I try to be conscious of what stage we're in right now. Uh, Would you like me to go into those stages? Yeah, please do. Great. Uh, The first thing I look at would be, uh, there's going to be some period of just, uh, you know, introductions or an opening or getting to know each other. And this is, this is really the goal is just to get the other person settled in and comfortable talking. Uh, you're not going to sit down across from someone and just say, so, you know, what's difficult about working on your team? You know, you're going to say, hi, you're going to introduce yourself. And so you, you ask a couple opening, easy questions to get things flowing. So uh, example questions for that might be things like, how do you start working in this field? Or what's been the biggest surprise since you joined? Things that are positive, they're pretty easy how you get start working in this field is actually a little risky because sometimes people just talk about that for 20 minutes. But the general message is that it's positive. You kind of get things flowing. Then you shift into the content phase. And this is where you're asking the questions that you're most curious about. And um, a lot of times, uh, we probably won't be covering it in too much detail during this podcast. Ideally, you'll have listed out what you want in a job pretty early in your job search. And this might be a moving target, but you'll know, hey, to work at a company... There's a few factors that are easy to measure, like can I commute to it in a sensible amount of time? And is the salary minimum that's listed, you know, in my ballpark? But other ones that are hard to find, you know, maybe some people prioritize, hey, I really want to have a lot of job security, or I really want to feel like I have a mentorship opportunity in this team, or things you can't just read in a job description. So a lot of your content questions here are going to be trying to drive at whatever those important goals you have are as well as collect information about the company strategy to equip you with more and more information for those interviews later on where you're in the assessment. So goal questions here might be something like, um, what's the main goals of the company in the next year? Or, uh, you know, how does the product team here, uh, work alongside engineering or specific interfaces with teams that you've had a difficulty with in the past, but, you know, more usually still positive, more intense than the opener, but, This is kind of where you live for most of the interview. And then the questions I really like, I refer to as intimate questions. And these are not, if you, I've done 600 informational interviews at this point, and I don't get to this in every, in every interview. It's something where you have to connect with the person you're talking to, because otherwise it's, it's very rude. And the way I define an intimate question is 
a question that most people wouldn't honestly answer to a stranger. So if I just walked up to you and said, are you happy with your job? You're going to reflexively say, yeah, especially because if you say no and your boss finds out, that's pretty scary for you. But these questions where you're really getting at what are the possible negatives about a company are often incredibly important to find out information. And also they're the kind of things where emotions come out. And if they go well, you're really building a relationship with the other party. So this might be something like, if I could see the future and tell you a few years from now that this company will have failed, what would be the reason you suspect caused it? Or who's the last person who quit and why do you think they left? So you don't lead with these. You don't use these unless you're bonding well with somebody. But this is where the real learning takes place. And then at the end, there's going to be some closing and next steps. So typically you're going, if you're learning, you're going to be asking for more intros. And if you're trying to impress and go for a referral, at this point, you'd ask for a recommendation of things are going well. So uh, you'd think of which questions you want in each phase. This doesn't have to be any, anything complicated. Maybe just one opener, three content questions, an intimate question, and what you're going to ask them for at the end. And then feel free to go off script. But even having good targeted questions in that framework will put you massively ahead of most people who are just going to go in and ask a few softball questions that haven't planned out in advance. For a lot of our listeners, the idea of reaching out to a stranger or, you know, sometimes maybe actually sometimes a stranger is easier. I can go into that, but often we get pushback when we say, you know, how are you going to gather information for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, whether that's a job interview or whether that's getting promoted. I mean, there's a lot of different things. And the great answer is to go have these informational discussions. Um, but sometimes it can feel like they're asking for a favor or they're you know, demanding too much of someone's time. How can you um, approach this in a way that, that feels confident and you're not really putting somebody else out as you reach out to them for that informational interview? Certainly. So I think that uh, that's, a, that's a phenomenal question. And actually, um, many of my clients, the biggest hump we have to overcome is getting them to send outreach email, whether that, and to your point, it's, you're exactly right that some people are more, most comfortable. They're fine reaching out to strangers. They're terrified to show their friends that they're job searching and others are very happy talking to people they know already. And just think if I send a cold email, like that's just not something you do. That's some sleazy sales tactic. Uh, and, um, you know, both of these are, are viewpoints that often take you weeks or, or months to overcome. Uh, but I think, one framework that really helps me think about this stuff is especially, you know, let's ignore the let's ask for recommendation interview for a second and let's focus on learning. Now, if you're doing a learning interview, you are asking someone to describe in detail what they spend most of their week doing. And if you're listening to this, I want you to think back to the last time someone took a half hour and really cared what you worked on. Because for most people, this happens less than three times a year. And the same way that most people enjoy conversations, you know, there are many studies showing that whoever talks more in a conversation thinks it's a great conversation. And it is such a rare and wonderful thing to have someone asking you a bunch of questions, letting you talk for a while, as we're doing right now. So thank you very much, Mary. I'm going to feel this is a great conversation. I, and, I think that you'll like me a lot more after this too, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so this is, in many ways, uh, they the person, if you're genuinely interested and you're not just trying to nod along and then ask them for a referral, but you can muster that genuine curiosity, that's a beautiful gift that people often don't receive for periods of years. Uh, and so once you do one or two of these and you really just go into it with the attitude of be curious, don't worry about getting a job, you're going to find that this is a positive experience for people and you're not going to be nearly as scared of doing it. And then when you do these learning interviews right, you learn so much about the company that when you go in to try and impress someone and ask for a recommendation, this isn't some sleazy or underhanded weird ask for a favor. This is you're just going in and you're showing that person, you know, a lot about their company and you are valuable to them. And the ideal recommendations, the ones where they're going to recommend you and talk to the recruiter, not just send your resume along and look for a quick buck off the referral are when they realize over the course of the conversation that this person has a lot of value and I want to work with them. There's some pull from their side, not just you being like, please, please send this in. And so uh, I think by focusing first on the learning interviews and being super curious, that naturally leads to knowledge. 
And then by having the knowledge of what the company is looking for, when you genuinely fit that and you know that, that's that quiet confidence allows the asking for a referral to be very different than when you go up and ask for something that you know that you don't deserve. For those learning conversations, you know, how do you map out who you should be reaching out to? For example, if you're lo- looking for an APM role versus a senior PM role, um, who should you be reaching out to and having a conversation with? Absolutely. I think that's a, a wonderful question. Actually, uh, so the, the book that I wrote recently, I have an entire chapter on who you should be trying to talk to in the first place. And I think that's an important question because it's very different um, success rates and thus how you'll feel about it when you're presenting yourself to the right people. Um, so I usually, I usually run through it in a certain hierarchy. Uh, if I have a lot of time and I really care about the business, the very first people I focus on unintuitively are people that did not ha- that do not have that role right now, but had that role in the past and left the company. Because you will never get more honesty than someone that no longer works there and no longer has to worry about what the boss thinks of them, but they've just left, so they have a lot of fresh perspective. And so I'll go on LinkedIn and I'll search by who used to work at these companies, and I'll try to see if I can reach out to them to talk with them. Um, Then, so let's say we're applying for um, maybe just a a senior PM role. So maybe not a manager of PMs, but you've been doing this for a little while. Then I would be looking for people that have that exact role right now. So who would be my peers in this position? And that's important for two reasons. One is that they're going to give you the truest view of what you're looking for. And the other is that uh, if you impress those people, those are the people who their recommendations are going to carry a lot of weight because they're basically going to be saying, I do this job. I think this person could do this job really well. And that's a no brainer for the recruiter. Um, after that, I would look at people that had that role in the past, but moved to other parts of the company. So maybe there was a senior PM that decided they wanted to be in business development, or maybe they were promoted into another division. Uh, but I would try to see who's moved internally. And then I would look, and this is very role dependent on who knows the most about the customer at that company. So sometimes that's going to be support. Sometimes it'll be sales. Sometimes it'll be account managers. Most PMs don't seem to try and interview those people, but, and they fancy that they know a lot about the user because that's how they hold their job is supposed to be. But as a PM, you just don't know enough. You just don't know as much about the user in many ways. And the people that are talking to those folks for four hours or more every day. And so I find it incredibly valuable when I'm applying as a PM to talk to someone on the support team about just what are the biggest complaints with the problem with the product or what are people like, what makes people feel emotional about this thing? And that's usually a really good trigger for where the biggest problems or the biggest values of the product are. Um, I don't usually, until you're pretty confident in your interviewing skills, I don't usually target the, your boss or your boss's boss right away. Um, it's kind of a high risk, high reward place. So I don't want to say it's by any means wrong. If you've done right, it's more powerful than almost anything you can do. But uh, I certainly wouldn't say your first informational interview should be with your future boss. You're going to want to do at least one learning interview and come into that conversation knowing enough to impress. Even if later on when you're confident in your job search, you would maybe go after the boss's boss right away and just try to fast track yourself to a position. Yeah. And it's unintuitive, but even when you talk with that potential future boss and you have a great conversation, say you take this high risk, high reward process they're still going to put you through the interview process. And so you still have to succeed with the rest of these other people involved. And and sometimes it's harder to get through that process. I've seen a lot of hiring managers refer candidates who actually don't make it through the end. Absolutely. And I think it's it's by no means, a, to your point, a free pass through. But I think a big... It done right, it almost should be. And that's why I've done 80% because there's a big... If you're finding out the right things in informational interviews, like the, the job I referred to junior year of college and internship where I was just coming off that totally failed job search. And I was like, this time is going to be different. I don't want to be this embarrassed. I don't want to spend my summer doing something I don't want to do. I interviewed enough people that I knew most of the questions they were going to ask me during the interview. I knew the publications their customers read. Uh, I knew some troubling ethical questions about the firm that really made people sit back and think when I asked questions. So I just arranged that to a T. And I'm not saying that's something you should do for every place you apply. But if you think about what would you do if you spent two or three times as much applying to somewhere 
It unlocks a lot of powerful alternatives that I think, while you certainly don't get a free pass at the end, if you have zero relevant experience, you're not going to be able to bluff that. Um, you should, you sh- it should feel unfair to the other candidates. And it's fair because you did more work than the other candidates, even if it's non-traditional. But a lot of what I view my job as, as a, as a job search coach and as a writer, is how do, I, how do you bend the probabilities in your favor so much that it would feel unfair not to be using this system? Because... I think the way that we're commonly, you know, everyone middle school, high school, it's how to make a resume, how to make a cover letter. And a lot of what we're talking about here is how to make the resume as irrelevant as possible. Um, and that is the game that I think a lot of people need to be playing in order to be more successful. And that's absolutely why they should buy your book. So tell me more about your book. What's in it and, and what is, you know, what can somebody expect to see when they start flipping through it? Absolutely. So the book is, uh, you know, very, very beautifully titled how to get first round interviews at tech companies. As you've seen during this conversation, I'm, I try to be extremely structured and focused on what matters. And so there's not a lot of fluff in here. It's really just what are all the steps it takes to be getting those interviews if you're not getting them right now. So that walks through how most people look for jobs, why that probably doesn't work. And then how do you organize your search how do you make resumes and cover letters? Not, not def- definitely not my specialty. I want that to be good enough, and I want you to be focusing on personal connections. And then how do you find those companies? How do you find those people? What exactly do you put in the outreach to those people, which is uh, you know, getting most of the people I work with can get a 20 to 30% response rate to cold email, which is actually quite good uh, when you're considering that every one of those responses is someone they've never met before, choosing to spend 15 or 20 minutes talking to them. And then once you're in the interview, some of the content we discussed today, how do you use those interviews to move forward? So I've just tried to use the work I've done with about 20 one-on-one clients and take the best of everything and put it in here. And I'd also be happy uh, for the first, say, two weeks after this um, podcast airs, then I'll have a discount code on uh, the Marlowe site for uh, where this podcast is posted. And so if you wanted to get 25% off the book for that period, because you think this might be useful to you, uh, then we'll have a code there for you to check out. And we'll add that code here at the end of this episode so that when it's live, we, we've got it covered there too. Um, you can find our podcast, just so you know, Matt, on Stitcher, iTunes, gosh, um, pretty SoundCloud. We're, we're kind of everywhere right now. Um, what resources do you recommend aside from your book uh, that our listeners check out as they're preparing for their first round p- product management interviews? Do you check out any websites or books that, that you've used in the past? Definitely. So um, it kind of depends on what they need, but I'll kind of quickly run through and mention uh, a few things that people find interesting uh, for really early in the process, figuring out kind of how to present yourself and what you're looking for. There's a phenomenal book from 1992 called In Transition. Uh, It has a chapter that talks about the fax machine with a straight face, but people haven't changed very much. And their exercises on how do you get to what you're looking for in a job have been really helpful for me and uh, many of the clients I've worked with. Uh, Then for once you're looking to get into the interviews, there's kind of a, um, a couple of resources I'd recommend to improve at how you perform. Um, two of these, uh, are places to find people to interview with. And one of them is going to be a way to work on your product management interview questions. So in terms of finding who to interview with, there's a website called stellar peers that is free. I I keep looking for like what the catch is if they're trying to make a new business, but I think someone just set it up to be very nice to PMs perhaps, but there's a high volume of people looking to practice product management interviews and there's no fees anywhere in the system. So if you want to feel more confident in how you present yourself, then you'd go in there, you'd have another PM that's applying with you, and half the time they interview you, half the time you interview them. Quality of the feedback is, of course, highly variable, but just getting reps in can be really good. Um, product Management HQ, or PMHQ, is a Slack community of product managers. Um, last I checked, it was 20 bucks one-time fee to join. I'm not affiliated in any way. They have a fairly active mock interview scene as well. Um, and it's also just a good place to ask general PM questions. Most people that are on there are uh, actual current PMs or recruiting PMs, not necessarily job seekers, uh, which can be great for if you have actual questions about how to perform your job well. And then finally, the uh, two books that usually come up the most are one's Decode and Conquer, 
by Lewis Lynn. I think he recently wrote a new book, but he's really, he's got a lot of great material on the product specific questions. So not behavioral kind of, how are you, you know, how would your team describe you or what's your management style, but design an app for women's shoes, which is a question I had at Google or many of the other questions that you'll face that showcase product manager skills. He's got some great frameworks. And then the other big author in the space, uh, Gail Lachlan McDowell, uh, wrote Cracking the PM Interview. My fun anecdote about that, though I haven't read the book yet, is that um, I'm, uh, I heard from the librarian at the SF Public Library that handles jobs and careers. They have 17 copies and it's never on the shelves. Uh, so certainly a lot of folks have found that book useful and it's um, something I'm going to be reading in the near future. So Stellar Peers and PMHQ to find practice partners, Decode and Conquer, which I have read and found useful and cracking the PM interview, which I haven't read yet for getting better at those interviews. And then um, check out fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. A friend of mine, Josh Judy for salary tips. He has some paid courses, but he has tons and tons of really good free material. So once you do get the offer, um, that offer could probably be a little bit higher if you negotiate correctly. So uh, make sure to do that 20 minutes of your life, right? And you get $5,000 more dollars. That compounds over time. <laughs> it does. It does. Anything else you'd like to add? This has been a fantastic conversation and I've really enjoyed it. What would you want our listeners to walk away with in one nugget? Uh, I think the main, the main thing would just be that there are many different paths to get to product management. And if the first few industries you try or ways you interview try don't succeed, uh, please don't feel discouraged that you can't get there. Sometimes it's a direct move. Sometimes you need to hold another job to build some skills and then move to there. But I've seen a lot of people take long paths to it that have ended in them being pretty happy. So uh, seek advice wherever you can and don't give up just because there's a, a, a rough couple weeks. Um, I also just, Mary, thank you so much for making this so easy and preparing it so well. I've had a, a great time being here and um, also just learning about Marlowe's general coaching material. Great. Well, I'm glad that you were. Where can our listeners find you? Aside from looking for your book, we'll link that. But what's your website? Uh, my website is unusuallydifficult.com. Uh, the name is because there's a lot of career articles and tips from places like the Muse, like seven tips for your resume. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's kind of a super easy shortcut that makes this all some happy process and you tweak one thing. Um, so I named it Unusually Difficult because uh, this is a grind. It is work, but there is a strategy which I've partially described here that I think manufactures success for those who are willing to uh, walk the road and take the steps to think through uh, each phase of the way. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you very much, Mary. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To learn more, check out getmarlow.com slash podcast.